If you like what we do here over at Aircrew Interview and would like to support us and help us grow, you can head over to our Patreon channel at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly. We have different tiers ranging from $1 per month right up to $25 with each tier offering different rewards. All the monthly donations greatly help us to continue creating these video and audio interviews so please take a look and I thank you in advance. Enjoy. So Mal, when did you first become interested in aviation? I suppose it was a slow process. I, I grew up around aviation. My dad was in the Air Force for 35 years uh, as a pilot, so we moved around a lot and you know, I, I would just be around aeroplanes as I grew up. But it, it was never really a, a, you know, I never really had it in mind that I was going to join the Air Force or fly when I, when I grew up. My, my big plan was I was going to be an architect until I got to sixth form and I started looking into the implications of, of an architecture course at university and realised it was, it was something like a five-year course plus then <laughs> professional qualification time. I thought, oh, that sounds way too much like hard work. And so I, I just sort of fell into the Air Force completely by accident. So when did you actually join the RAF? Joined in late 1986 and graduated from officer training at Cranwell in 1980, middle of 1987. So did you always want to become an AV? No, I, I applied initially for pilot, as is the way with a lot of, of folks, uh, and you go through all the aptitude tests and, and they say, yeah, your aptitude's fine for this and that, um, better for navigator than for pilot, and you don't get to choose at that stage, so navigator it was. So can you talk us through some of your basic flying training the aircraft you started on? I did my flying training at Finningley in Doncaster, now Doncaster Airport, not for much longer, sadly. Um, and you do, as we all, all, all the training follows a similar pattern, so you start with ground school and learn the basics and then you go and do a bit of flying and then you return to ground school and, it, and it's a sort of step-by-step -step process like that. So actually the first flights we did were on the Bulldog. We did four flights on the Bulldog, which is just to get you familiar with being in the air and see who's, who's horribly airsick and who isn't. <laughs> And then you go back into ground school and then the, the flying training syllabus is then split into two parts. So you do the basic phase of training and that itself is split into two as well. So the first part of that is on the Domini. So you do some ground training, simulator exercises and then go flying in the Domini. Uh, a bunch of trips on the Domini and this is all medium level work. Um, just getting used to flying, operating an aircraft with kit, that kind of thing. Airways flying, using the radar, those sort of things. Then at the end of that, you return to ground school and do the jet provost phase. So we were flying T5s and T5As at Finningley. Uh, and again, ground training, then you get flights in the, in the jet provost. And that was to see how you were at low level. So you, you've actually done the, the dominant section at medium level, then the jet provost section at low level. And at the end of that, so you're now about halfway through the training, they make a decision on who's got the aptitude for which type of flying. And they'll stream you either what they called group one, which was basically ground attack or air defense, or group two, which was air mobility and ISR. So did you actually have an aircraft you actually wanted to go into? Did you want to go at the F3, GR? What, what I, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, yeah. I. I desperately wanted to go onto the tornado because it was a new aircraft at the time this is you know i'm 87 to 89 i was doing my nav training the the tornado was relatively new in service i'd actually been at cottesmore when the first tornado was delivered to the RAF oh, wow. uh, and flew in there so that that was that might have sown a seed i suppose <laughs> um but you then see the second half of the flying training at finningley is 
a repeat effectively what you did first time around back to the Domini but now you're flying the Domini at low level so that's getting you used to having been streamed fast jet for me uh, back to the Domini at, at low level this time to get you used to operating with kit in a low level environment mm. then onto jet provosts and, and you're doing low-level navigation, target runs, that kind of thing. Although the Jet Provost syllabus was split into two-thirds ground attack and then you did a third was air defence. Um, so that's they're, they're really just sounding you out for your aptitude for various different roles at that stage. Mm. So at the end of the whole thing, uh, we had a big postings party with where both halves of the course come together, the group one and the group two halves of the course. And there's, it, it was, I mean, carnage, frankly. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, challenge, drinking challenges and fancy dress and all sorts. And it, you know, eventually out of the barrel, you pull your posting. And mine was to the Tornado Geo on, which I was thrilled to bits about. There was, I could have, uh, the options really were well, you either went air defence, which would be Phantoms or F2, F3 at the time, uh, or to ground attack, which was Buccaneer or Tornado. And we knew there was a Buccaneer slot for our course, and uh, three of us were in the running to get it, and there were, there were various criteria for, for what meant you would get sent to Buccaneer, but essentially it was how few sorties you'd failed on the course so far, because the Buccaneer didn't have as much nav kit as the Tornado, mm. so it was deemed that, that that required a bit more nows to fly it. Um, but I was desperate to go to the tornado, and luckily one of the other guys got the buccaneer slot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what were your th uh, first thoughts on the tornado GR one? It's, I mean, it was every well. There's, there's a, sorry, there's another step in the flying training actually, which is uh, you go for having finished at Finningley. Um, I went off and did a couple of months holding. Most people did. I went out to Larbrook for two months, just just in a ground roll out there. And then uh, there was a hawk phase to the flying training. So I, I went to Chivener over the early summer of 1989 and did my hawk flying there. Um, and the hawk cockpit is tiny. Yeah. It's, you know, you're really wedged into that thing. And then the step up to the tornado is, is so vastly different. I mean, it's, the, the aircraft's like twice the size, the cockpit's commensurately much bigger. So you were in a, in a hawk, you were jammed into the cockpit like this in the tornado. It's like you're sitting on a throne, you've got space around you, you can, you know, it's, it, it's, you have that impression of it being so much of a bigger aircraft and a more powerful aircraft, but also with that, that much more space. I suppose in a way it, it felt more secure because of that, because you've got a lot of iron work around you, yeah. this big aeroplane, and the Hawk, you feel quite exposed. In the Tornado, you felt quite sort of snug and tucked in. So you've definitely felt a bit safer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can you talk us through some of your flying training on the uh, GR1? Yeah, the first half of it, you, well, back then, we would, it, it was done at uh, RF Cottesmore, what was called the Tri-National Tornado Training Establishment. So that was Brits, Italians, and Germans all flying together. The squadrons were mixed. One of them was led by an Italian, one by a German, one by a Brit. I happened to be on the Brit squadron, but I was crewed with an Italian, top bloke. Um, we, we got on like a house on fire and you, again, the, the flow of the training is the same. So you do synthetic, you do classroom-based training, then synthetic training in the, in the simulator, which was very much more of a procedures trainer than it was a simulator. But, um, and then, so effectively you'd practice a sortie in the sim and then go and fly it in the air. And then that's the, the flow right throughout the training. 
Um, and the, the seventh trip by, from recollection was the one where we got to go crew solo. Oh, so wow. Max and I taking an aircraft off together for the first time as students. And it, it feels like, it, it really feels like you're, I, I don't know, hot wire in a car and going off joyriding or something. You feel like, like what, what's happening here? <laughs> there's an element of this shouldn't be happening, but, but, and yet somehow here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever get to drop uh, live weapons during your training phase? No, not, not at that phase. In fact, at Cottesmore you don't do any uh, any weapons at all. You do simulated attack profiles just using the software in the jet. But it wasn't until we got to Honington for the second half of the training, for the advanced part of the tornado training, that we got to, to drop weapons. But even then it was practice weapons. So you'd have three kilogram practice bombs to replicate low level lay down sorties and 14 kilogram bombs to do loft bombing you know, toss bombing stand up range from the target you pull up and drop the bomb um, we did do some strafe uh, with the 27mm cannon but that was that was the extent of the weapons trading there so everything's simulated because the right. jet has its own software internally that can simulate all the different types of weapon for the, for the attack profiles mm -hmm. didn't the triple T uh, always fly clean jets or were they tanked up sometimes yeah they were pretty much clean uh, yeah, and the, the remarkable <laughs> thing is that a clean tornado, although it's got less fuel because you haven't got the external fuel tanks, because it's got so much less drag, you'd get the same duration out of it as you would by putting the tanks on. So it was a strange thing putting the tanks on, but you really because of the drag of the the Seableys, the carrier bomb light stores, the things that, that the practice bombs go in underneath the aircraft, the drag of those was significant. So you then once you got onto that phase of flying, you had to have the tanks on the aircraft to give you the fuel to fly the sortie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So what was your first uh, frontline squadron? I went to the 16 squadron at Larbrook. Nice. The Saints. Um, well, everything slotted into place for me. It was going on to the tornado, going out to Larbrook, having held there. Uh, everything was just as I wanted it to be and, and going out to 16 Squadron. And frankly, it doesn't matter which squadron you do your first tour on because it's, it's always an excellent tour. But Germany was a, a special place anyway to do your first tour uh, and Larbrook was a great place to do it. So we, we were based at Larbrook and flew, flew sorties across Germany, across the Benelux countries, back to the UK. You know, the world was kind of your oyster for the, for the flying training side of it there. Does it ever feel like work? Because it just doesn't sound like work, but it just oh, sounds like I, amazing I said, fun. You know, we're, we're here at Solway Aviation Museum today where I, where I do some volunteering. And when people ask me about my time in the Air Force, I said, well, it was way better than working for a living, <laughs> uh, which is flippant. But it is, you know, it's long days and, and hard work flying, flying the aircraft. And, uh, but it, it just somehow never quite feels like work. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. You yeah. weren't getting up and like, oh, I have to go on to work today kind of thing. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But you, you know, you're still training. So when you arrive on a frontline squadron as a, as a junior nav or junior pilot, there's a whole syllabus to go through to become combat ready. And the focus of that initially is on the strike syllabus. So you've, you, the tornado had the nuclear role, as did the Buccaneer at the time. Um, and the priority is to get you nuclear weapon qualified. Right. which is a massive pain in the backside because everything has to be absolutely perfect for yeah, obvious I've heard reasons. That before, yeah. um, so you 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 have to do uh, have to do something called the strike quiz which was in the wing operations center you would go and you'd be quizzed on the procedures for the nuclear weapons flights um, you'd be quizzed on in detail on something called Suplan Mike which was the the NATO targeting manual the procedures for for a nuclear war effectively uh, and and then you'd also have to go through something called WST, Weapons Standardization Training. And that was where you were, you were initially did ground school to learn about the weapon, its effects, 
and, and everything about how the system worked uh, and then you would be tested when WST would come and visit the, squad, the squadron or the station and that again everything had to be absolutely perfect on that. A bit nerve-wracking. Yeah absolutely <laughs> because if you if you fail your nuclear weapon qualification you're no use to the squadron so you would have to go and find you know they'd, they'd redeploy oh, wow. you to another aircraft type. Really? Yeah. Even after all that training and everything? Yeah yeah. Wow. Yeah so so that that was pretty intense and then Around that, you're also doing part of your attack combat ready workup, um, and it takes about five or six months to get fully combat ready on the jet, which I achieved in June of 1990. Big day then. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. We were actually we were on deployment at the time. We were out at Goose Bay, so you would you would deploy. There were two generally two big exercises the squadrons would do each year. One was to Dechimamanu in Sardinia, which would either be for a bombing practice camp or for air combat training. Mm and you would go to Goose Bay on something called Exercise Western Vortex. And again, Goose Bay was another, it was a, like Cottesmore in many ways. The Germans were, were out there as well. Uh, the Dutch had a presence there. It was a Canadian Forces base as well. So they had um, F-18s there, I think, on Quick Reaction Alert. So that was a very tri-national flavor to, or quadrinational flavor to that base. Uh, but it was these massive low-flying areas where you could get out and do some of the stuff that it was difficult to do in the UK, particularly flying the, the tornado had a, a terrain following radar system, which was absolutely superb and could fly you down to a couple of hundred feet, hands off in, in all weather. But there's very few places in the UK you can do that training. Yeah. Um, the Highlands restricted area is, is one, but it's you have to book it in advance. So anyway, you go to Goose Bay and, and the areas are open for you to do this, with one exception, which is the caribou migrations. Oh, right. So where in the UK or in Germany, uh, before a sortie, you, you check the NOTAMs of the day, the notices to airmen, and they tell you any areas that you have to avoid overflight. And that might be because of a festival going on or restrictions over you know you can't overfly hospitals and things like that ah. um, in Canada there's generally none of that but there'll be a big note I'm telling you where the caribou are that day and you you can't you're not allowed to overfly them because it interferes with their migration patterns right. uh, so you'd, you'd check for the caribou migrations and then you'd you'd have the whole flying area to to go out and do operational low flying down to 100 feet or bad weather TFR training that's great. You don't think about things like that, that the caribou migration. You just don't think, do you? Like it's, it's, it's a really interesting point there. Yeah. There was actually the other difference with Goose Bay was that uh, because there, so there was a, a range that you could bomb on, which was unmanned. Uh, there were targets out there, but it's, it's right out in the middle of nowhere, and in the summer it's tinder dry, so you can't drop the, the, the practice weapons we normally use. The three kg and the fourteen kg bombs have a little flash charge in them, smoke and flash charge, so that the range control can spot the bomb right yeah if it if it on the many times it doesn't actually hit the target um but at goose baby we weren't allowed to use those because of the risk of starting a forest fire so we had to use the 28 pounder instead which is a, a u.s uh, practice weapon and then the only significant i mean the ballistics were slightly different so you had to put a little frig into the software to tell the aircraft it was it was dropping a different weapon but you know the difference was that it didn't have a, a smoke flash charge mm -hmm. So you, you weren't getting any feedback on how your bombing was, but you were, you were getting the practice of dropping bombs on targets without the risk of setting fire to 
Probably a good great thing. Great Swede of <laughs> northeastern Canada. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want that on your mind, would you? No. But uh, maybe can you tell us, because I'm quite interested in this, was there like an average day for a GR1 nav? Like, can you just describe that for our viewers? Did you have a lunch break at 12.30 or No, like there's, there's <laughs> absolutely nothing like that. It's, the, the flying programme is king. So whatever, whatever the flying programme says dictates everyone's uh, pattern for the day. So you would either be on the flying program to fly or you might be on it to go to the simulator or you might be on it for something else. So you might be, the squadron always had a duty crew whose responsibility would, would be to keep the place clean and make sure that uh, you know people are tidying up after themselves and just, just sort of generally keeping on top of whatever jobs need doing during the day. If you're on the flying program, it would be one of, generally speaking, the squadron would fly two or three waves a day. If it was day flying, it would be two waves. If there was night flying, you might have a third wave in the evening. Uh, and so your day would be dictated by what time your met brief was to, to come in to start preparing for the flight. So if you're on first wave and it's an early takeoff, um, you've probably got two and a half hours of planning and briefing before that. So if you've got eight, eight a.m. takeoff, which wasn't uncommon, you'd be on the squadron for half five to, to get your met brief and start planning and, and get the sortie together. Um, if, you were, if you were lucky, you might have had sufficient advance notice the day before that you could get the majority of the planning done, so you might be able to push the start time back in the morning. Um, but then you'd, so you'd then have, take that average day, that half five start, two and a half hours, start planning to take off. Um, fly an hour and a half sortie or maybe if you're going doing a high low high to the UK that might be two and a half two hours 45 so you, you're getting back late morning then there's the debrief to do run through the films see what your results were so it's it's a an eight hour day just for the one flight and then you've probably got something else to do you might fly again in the afternoon um, particularly if you're going through a workup, they try and try and bang you through that as, as quickly as possible to get you useful. Um, but if you weren't flying in the afternoon, you might be in the simulator, or you might go and do something called DAO, duty aircrew officer. So whenever there was tornado flying taking place, somebody would, the squadrons would take it in turns to have somebody up in the air traffic control tower, oh, okay. just in case something went badly wrong, in case there was a, an aircraft with an emergency, an unusual emergency, the DAO would be there to advise their traffickers on any particular requirements that that might you know come up. So for some some emergencies, you might need to take an approach end cable. Some you might be anticipating the potential of a departure end cable. Um, so you would just be advising air traffic control because it takes the crew a certain while to think to work through the checklists. You could probably arrive at a conclusion before them to, to tell air traffic, right, you're gonna to need to rig the approach end cable for this. So that's that's the duty aircrew officer's job. Most of the time, you can imagine, there aren't emergencies happening every day. So as DAO, you're, you're quite often sat with your feet up just enjoying the view and watching the flying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you could be doing DAO uh, or failing that you might be just, if, if you've got spare time, there wasn't really such a thing, but you would be heads in the books, learning about aircraft systems, learning about, you know, like I said, supplement mic for the nuclear weapons stuff, or there's always something to read up on the electronic countermeasures suite whatever you, you never know everything so there's you never complete it really. no no exactly <laughs> now if you were night flying the difference would be that your your met brief would be much later you'd come in about lunchtime to get a met brief and do your planning in the afternoon and then and then go off night flying and with night flying you're the end of the sortie would 
probably be a bit truncated because the it was wet film back then for the radar and head-up display recording so that wouldn't uh, of a night sortie the, the photogs wouldn't be in to do that processing so you might get a little bit truncated debrief and, and then finish the debrief the following the following morning to to look at the films but generally it followed that sort of yeah there's no template day but the, the flying program dictated what you were doing it's not 12 o'clock lunchtime no no <laughs> none of that but you mentioned goose beer there but uh, can you did you fly on any other large exercises and how did other nations view the tornado gr1 yeah we did we uh so i did a couple of red flag exercises in those those first couple of years in germany in fact, I did two red flags. The first one was so spectacularly unsuccessful because of the weather that it was renamed Black Flag. Uh, but I did actually. This was so. I did um, a year and a half on Sixteen Squadron because uh, shortly after the Gulf War, the, the squadron was disbanded. It was the first of the ones to go in the cuts, um, and I was under threat at that point of going being sent to a ground tour because they had all these navs spare that they didn't know what to do with. But my boss put in a word for me and. and I got sent to 14 squadron at Bruggen and the idea with that was I would finish my first tour there so do the last year of my tour eventually I actually did a full a, a full tour on 14 so I did four years in Germany before I succumbed to a ground tour uh, but while I was on 14 we did these two red flags and the first one um, I was I was crewed with a pilot called Doug Moore and we were the, the chosen crew from the squadron to do a mission lead on red flag wow so the only two sorties i did on that red flag were the famil sortie because everyone has to do a famil sortie to get used to the procedures in the airspace and, and the like um and then the next day we sat out because we were planning for the mission for the following day so we we were you know in charge of the entire shooting match that all, all of the planning went through us we had to decide or the targets were allocated and then you decide how you split your assets up and uh, with red flag the biggest issue and and this is this goes for any exercise where all the aircraft are at the same base the biggest issue is not what happens in the in the target area although that's that needs a lot of attention the yeah. big issue is always the taxi and takeoff pattern to get everybody before, airborne yeah. to get all the aircraft up through the same airspace and out into the into the training areas in in uh in in time because obviously <laughs> you, you want you, you get the AWACS airborne first so they can check clear the airspace and then the fighters go up and then so eventually you've you've worked your way through the target areas and who's doing which targets in what order and and out you go so so Doug and I had the mission lead and that went to my recollection went successfully uh, and then for the rest of that red flag the weather was dreadful and we didn't get to enjoy any of the flying we just had that one really high stress sortie and, um, but then we did do another red flag later on um 14 squadron which was uh, actually was interesting because it was the first i think it was the first time the RAF had done a day and night red flag so we flew about half the sorties we did were day sorties and about half were at night um, and one of those night sorties uh, I don't recall who I was flying with actually but we were our egress off the target took us very close to one of the avoidance areas in the range so there was what was known as the big box and the small box and the big box was area 51 absolutely forbidden to fly in that the small box was Tony Parr test range where the uh, F117s were based mm, and did yeah. their training and it, it was still you were still in trouble if you flew through the through Tonopah, but not as much trouble as if you flew through Area 51. So if you flew through Area 51, you were off the exercise. If you flew through Tonopah, you would have to sit out a day or two while you considered what you'd done wrong. <laughs> 
Um, so this night, our, our turn off the target took us very close to the, the Tonopah range, but there was um, there was a dried lake bed on the edge of Tonopah, right on the corner of the Tonopah airspace. And as we turned off target, we were looking down at this dried lake bed, so we knew we were outside the the area. But back in the debrief, the uh, for the debrief for Red Flag, all the aircraft are instrumented. You're carrying an instrumentation pod on the wing, and it tracks your every move. Uh, it, it for the fighters, it validates their air-to-air -air shots. So the, the pod is is king, and they 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 have triangulation stations around the range that track the pod and see where you're going. And the debrief, they put up a massive screen of the training area at Red Flag, and you appear as little tracks on yeah. there, just just like air traffic control radar looking at the world um, so every aircraft is individually tracked and it, it was immediately apparent to to us sitting in the debrief that the tracking looked slightly out that I, when we were ingressing through the target there were certain areas we were flying over and we knew where they were and we were slightly displaced from them on the screen and we thought mm, that could be an issue um, so as it's it, during that debrief, whenever a shot is taken, whenever a shot was taken out in the area, the blue air or red air will stand up and say, freeze there. At this point, tornado takes a target on F-14 and it times out as a valid kill. So they'll have a quick look at that. Right, okay, unfreeze, carry on. And it, our little blip is tracking along the area and going straight for Tonopah test range. <laughs> Oh, this is bad. <laughs> uh, and just as we're about to hit the, our tracking blip is about to hit the edge of the box. So he says, stop it there. I think, well, we're done. We're done. <laughs> We've been rumbled. And somebody says, okay, uh, down in the southwest area here, B1 is targeted by an F-15. And so someone says, okay, play that through. So we're all watching B1 and F-15 down here. Everyone's watching that except us. And we're watching our little dot. <laughs> Track, th track apparently through the corner of the test range area and back out at which point they say all right yeah it's a valid kill unfreeze and we get away with it because everyone's been watching this air to air bit and <laughs> our bit was was just glossed over so we were yeah happily escaped unscathed from that even though we knew we hadn't been in the area but yeah. it, it looked for all the world like we had absolutely so yeah as i said before uh, did, how did the other nations view the tornado did they actually see it as a threat or anything like that yeah i, I think i mean it, it was um a capable enough aircraft for its time you know they were, we didn't have back in those early days we didn't have uh, a tar you know a targeting pod to do laser guided bombing or anything that, that didn't come yeah. until the gulf war um and even after the war they were so scarce that for the majority of exercises you didn't have them so we were generally a, a dumb bombing aircraft unless we were dropping laser guided bombs for somebody else to spike but even so you know the, the nav and weapon aiming system was pretty accurate and we could carry a reasonable a reasonable warload mm -hmm. so we were comparable to the f-111 which was still kicking about at the time or the a6 yeah um so yeah there was there were, there were no qualms with with getting us integrated to packages and things what things we lacked were secure radios and and that kind of stuff yeah. there, you know corners were always cut on costs with those sort of things but um for the most part we would slot in easily to a package and uh even on ops actually you would you would fit the u.s navy because they use the same air to air refueling method as us mm -hmm and and have very similar procedures you, know, you would fit in easily with anything they were doing but it, it all worked out easily enough with the USAF as well mm -hmm. did you integrate with uh, other nations on a social level 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I mean, if you go back to Goose, Goose Bay and I said you've got the Germans there and the Dutch, everyone had their own bars and you would occasionally get an invite to to go to one of the other nations' bars and so there, there was always there was always good natured banter on, on that <laughs> front. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine, yeah. And throughout the training, particularly in Germany, you also you also did a lot of training with uh, with other nations' air forces anyway. So you would do squadron exchanges. Um, so I remember one time a, a Norwegian F-16 squadron, I think, came out to Larbrook to fly with us. Um, sometimes you would get to fly on the return leg of that as well. Uh, you would do things like something called Ample Train, where you would do a land away to another NATO nation's base, maybe somewhere in France or, or a German base or Italy or wherever. Um, and that would give the ground crew there a chance to do some servicing on the oh, tornado. Okay. Yeah. So you would just, this would be, you'd fly a training sortie down there, land, go and have lunch, if it was a French base, there'd be wine on the tables at lunchtime. <laughs> you had to resist the, the temptation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the aircraft would have been serviced and you'd fly a training sortie home again in the afternoon. So between those squadron exchanges and, and the cross-training exercises, you saw quite a lot of the other nations as well. You've also flown the tornado in combat. Can you tell us about this and your experience? Yeah, so my experience of the of the Air Force in general was shaped by events in 1989. And for example, I, I told you before my dad was in the Air Force and did 35 years and his career was pretty much overshadowed entirely by the Cold War. Well, the first, so I said we did our tornado training in two phases and the, the advanced phase was at Honington. The day of my first trip at Honington was the 9th of November 1989, which is the day the Berlin Wall came down. Ah. And from that moment on, everything kind of changed. And yeah. the, there was a slow dissolving of the Cold War around us. And it didn't, you know, there was, there was no knee-jerk reaction. Everything carried on as if, as if that, as if the Warsaw Pact wasn't disintegrating. I think as much as anything, because, because people didn't know what else to focus on. Um, and then in my fir that first year out in Germany, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And it, from that point on, my career was almost entirely focused on the Middle East. Mm. So you'd gone from, you joined a Cold War Air Force and the Cold War had just evaporated in front of you. And you, you now faced a completely different career trajectory and, and threat profile. And we were, initially it wasn't obvious that the tornado was gonna be involved in the, out in the Gulf. Most people's first question was, where's Kuwait? <laughs> uh, now my squadron boss, brilliant bloke, Trav, um, he had done his first tour flying hunters in Bahrain. Uh, so he, he knew all about the Middle East, so we, we were relatively quickly queued in. But it wasn't obvious that we were going to deploy, so life went on as normal. And early September, we were doing some dissimilar air combat training with the F-15s at Bitburg. Nice. So we would fly down there, fight them in the morning, come back home, refuel, go and fight them again in the afternoon which I mean I say fight them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> essentially it's a, it's a one-legged man in a <laughs> ass kicking contest but um, <laughs> but it, it was a brilliant experience to be exposed to to their procedures and, and a, you know a real capable fighter but on the afternoon of the second day we heard something that you almost never heard which was a, a, a general recall over over the guard frequency on the radios. So a general recall issued for all RAF Germany aircraft straight back to base. Mm. Oh, interesting. So we hop foot back to Larbrook and land, and and the force is now knee deep suddenly in preparations for Op Granby. Again, initially they, they chose who was going to go out as the initial squadrons and or prepare for deployment, and that I think was Bruggen squadrons. So 
our role largely was getting jets prepped. The squadron was preparing jets to to go to Bruggen. So there was, you know, cherry picking jets from across the fleet, the ones that had the least hours to the next major servicing, that sort of thing. So we were doing air tests on Granby jets. So suddenly you're flying in, in jets painted desert pink and that was all interesting. Uh, and there was there were little modifications creeping onto the aircraft for, for Gulf operations. Um, and then probably about November, we got warned that we'd be deploying as the build-up continued. So at that point, the, there was a, so this, this is where the, the, the thin veneer of the combat ready workup is exposed. Um, so technically, at the end of your combat ready workup, you're, you're competent to go to war with any of the weapons on the aircraft. Uh, but as soon as there was an actual war on the horizon, out comes a whole new syllabus. Wow. Like, and there were uh, like 20 odd sorties on there that, you, that it was desirable for you to do to, before deployment to the Gulf. Because most of us had never done air to air refueling. Um, most of us had never flown in heavyweight fit. Most of us had never flown with the AR-5, which is this horrible thing, an aircrew respirator. Oh yeah. Which is a, an all-in-one rubber bag respirator thing that goes over your head and you wear it with NBC kit. It's awful. absolutely <laughs> awful to fly it. You, you just end up drenched in sweat. <laughs> Um, so we, we did AR5 flying, never both of you in the cockpit wearing it. So I, I did two AR5 flights, one in the UK and one once we'd deployed. Oh, sorry, one from Germany and one once we'd deployed. Utterly miserable. The one we did from Germany, we were supposed to fly uh, a high-low high to the UK. But we got halfway to the UK and we were already halfway through the oxygen because I was oh. breathing that heavily wearing really? the kit. So we had to turn back and we never got the low-level portion of it done. Um, so yeah, you, you went through all this workup, night flying, four ships, heavyweight with, with 8,000 pound bombs on, air to air refueling from, from VC-10s, Tri-Stars, Victors, um, to get as much practice as you could before we deployed. And then in December 90, so I hadn't even been on the squad in a year, we rocked up at Tabuk in Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And from that point on, it's the, the, the training just continued in theatre. So you do some theatre for mill, but then everything is into a, a real focus on four ship night operations, eight ship night operations, uh, using the terrain following radar, low level. We flew some, again, some heavyweight training sorties. Nobody, well, perhaps one crew had ever flown with JP-233, the runway denial weapon, which was an enormous thing. Yeah. So we all got, well, I think most of us got to fly with live JP-233 rounds on, go up to the tanker, experience what that was like. And then you're just into a, a sort of countdown period waiting for, well, hopefully no war to start, but start it did. So do you have any stories from flying in combat that you can share with our viewers? Yeah, there's a few. In fact, it, I was I was here at the museum yesterday doing some tours on the Vulcan bomber, and somebody had heard I was I'd ex Air Force and was asking me about it, and they said, "So did did you get shot at then, or not?" Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all got shot at a lot. Uh, there is a sort of myth myth through the war that um, that we achieved air supremacy, and that the skies were were easy to fly through. But there was I never felt unthreatened in the skies because there was always. There were always systems still up, but in the early part of the war, there was you know, everything was still up. Although the first night, there was a concerted effort to try and to try and take down the all the air defences, but you can't get everything. And um, so the first, I mean, Tabuk was the biggest tornado wing, uh, tornado GR wing, and we were 
I think the most heavily tasked. So that the first week I flew six of the first seven nights uh, and, and it was just constant. And the first three or four of those were low level sorties and th they were heavily defended airfields. On the first night, uh, Mike Warren, who I was flying with, he and I had to turn back early because we'd got two different system failures that mm. meant, first of all, meant we didn't have a radar to mark the target. And second, we didn't have one half of the JP233 functioning. Um, but we managed to get out with JP233 on the second night and we were going to H3 airfield. Uh, the boss had the benefit, he was leading the formation, he had the benefit of having seen what the defences were like on the first night. Mm -hmm. And as we ran in towards, um, towards the airfield, it, it was just wall-to-wall anti-aircraft fire everywhere. And he said it was worse than the previous night, and the previous night had been bad. So he said there's, there's absolutely no way we'll get through there unscathed. And he had the sense, and, and this was a massive... Uh, signal for the rest of the for the rest of the squadron and, and everyone at Tobruk. He just had a sensible caption. Said, "Look, this isn't going to be a quick war. There's no point taking us all through that and losing aircraft." So he he made it what is it the, the bravest decision I've probably ever seen flying, and said, "Terminate the attack." Wow. Um, at this stage, we were already on the final run into the attack, so we're we we had turned. Um, more or less as the boss was making this call. So we're, we're flying in a four ship in parallel track at night. Um, so you're about two or three miles laterally spaced and, and about 40 seconds to a minute apart. So I don't know, five or six miles apart uh, between the two elements of the pair. So they had already turned onto the final attack run to see this wall of AAA, which we could, we could all see it. We could see it from before we crossed the border. Um, uh, the boss called terminate the attack and at that point we were turning more or less overhead the Amman to Baghdad highway and as we turned we got indications of an SA-8 missile target tracker on our radar warning receiver <clears throat> so it didn't need the boss to tell us to terminate the attack <laughs> we had to defend the aircraft anyway so we did a, we, we executed a, a 90 degree turn to try and put the target radar onto the beam I'm chaffing and making sure that the countermeasures are working Mike's flying the aircraft um, we then get locked up again, so we do another 90 degree turn. Uh, so now we're, we're heading more or less west at the point that the boss is terminating the attack. So having defeated the radar, which may or may not have been a SAM-8, it later transpired that a lot of the wiring in the aircraft radar warning receiver system was damaged right. um, across the fleet. So sometimes your own transmissions gave you indications of a threat radar. <laughs> um, but we just ended up rolling out south and about I don't know, 20 miles ahead of us was a uh, one of the Iraqi airfield air forces highway strips. This was a part of the highway that was widened and strengthened mm -hmm. for use as a deployment airfield. So the boss said, "Just drop on targets of opportunity." So we just lined ourselves up with the highway strip and dropped our weapons there. Uh, as we were doing that, what appeared, what we thought was anti-aircraft fire, opened up to the right of us. But we just we thought well, we, we're committed to the attack now, so we we did our attack. Um, and the short story of that is everyone got home safely. It, it later turned out that what we thought had been AAA was actually one of our other uh, formation members dropping their JP233 a couple of miles out to the oh, wow. east of us, uh, well, at the west of us, the right-hand side of us. So, and they had started out that night on the other side of us. So somewhere in all of this, us threat reacting and them turning away from target, we'd crossed over in the dark, low level at night <laughs> and somehow missed each other. Uh, you, you're just relying on the big sky theory at that point so yeah. so that was an interesting baptism of fire for us <laughs> the next 
low-level sortie we did was equally interesting. We were doing loft bombing by this stage, so we, we had 8,000-pound bombs on, uh, and a loft attack is where you, you pull up about three or four miles from the target, and the computer figures out when to release the bombs, and they just fly free-fall down to the target. It was another airfield, um, and we were attacking a... a POL site, a fuel dump, but it was co-located with a AAA site. Um, so we had a mixture of, of fusing for that attack. We had four bombs impact fused for the POL site and four bombs airburst fused for the, for the AAA site. As we pulled up in the loft attack, the AAA site was firing at us. Mm. So they, they'd got a pretty good bead on the direction we were coming in and, and you fly, you pull up, you release the bombs and then you pull the aircraft over hard and pull back out and fly back the way you came. As we were going through that manoeuvre, the tracer from this AAA site was going either side of the aircraft. Oh. Uh, so you've got, I mean, all you can do is, is follow the procedures at that point and fly the aircraft and just hope for the best. And how, how none of that hit us, I'll never know. <laughs> um, but we got out of it safely. And then the, the other one that's, that really focused our minds was, uh, I don't know, probably about a week later or so, and we were up at medium altitude by this stage. And the defences had been well suppressed, but there was still a lot of SEAD activity going on. We particularly had, um, often had SEAD support from the US Navy boats out in the Red Sea. Um, A6s or A6Bs firing harms. We sometimes had F1, EF-111s jamming for us. Occasionally our own alarm tornadoes were firing for us. Um, uh, so there would have been support for us on this night, but it was area support by this stage, so they weren't dedicated to each strike package. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were bombing a, a target to the west of Baghdad. A glorious clear night. The Iraqis had got the message by this time that if they fired um, guided missiles, they would get shot at. So they were firing unguided missiles, and it was fascinating to watch. We were just flying along in towards the target, watching missile launches around us, and just just kind of you can trace the missile and see where it's going and it's not tracking on us that's fine just as we're approaching the target area we start to get we're, we're into the attack at this stage so i'm working the radar we've got the attack the, the target identified out in about our 1 o'clock the radar warning receiver comes up with sam 2 target tracker so you get a little siren with that to warn you so that's mm -hmm. it's not a huge problem at this point mm -hmm. i put chaff out make sure the pod is doing what it should be doing to jam mike and i discuss it quickly um, so we're pressing on with the attack the next thing that happens is it that changes that siren and the the display and the tone change and it goes to sa2 missile guidance which is a warbling like woo, 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 to, to really get your attention mm -hmm. and at that exact moment a massive flash down on the ground and a, and a SAM-2 missile comes off the rails and we know it's launched at us because we've got the, the indications in the yeah. cockpit. We're so close to to bomb release at this time that we think, right, we'll just press. We'll, we'll press with the attack. I'm chaffing. I'm making sure the pod's jamming. So we release the bombs and we can, because it's it was fired at us at relatively short range and it's a two-stage missile, the SA-2. Mm -hmm. So it's got a boost phase, then that will drop away and then there's a another rocket that, that guides it to the impact so the benefit of that was we could track it throughout its time of flight because it was short time of flight the, the engine was burning throughout so we can see the missile so as soon as the bombs are released Mike just turns hard off target pulls down into the missile and or where we think the missile is bearing in mind it's dark but you, you're just watching the flame mm -hmm. uh, and 
we just do what the missile it must have worked to an extent because it detonated behind us somewhere close enough that we felt the blast wow but when we but we didn't get any battle damage from it so the warhead missed us um and then you just got to you know, get back to the formation, get to the tanker and get home at that stage. And then the, you know, the ground crew check the aircraft when you're back and, and there's no holes in it. Uh, yeah, so we had some interesting nights. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so to wrap up the tornado part of the interview, did you enjoy your time on the GR1? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It, it was, you know, it, it was never the best jet. Everyone knew that. It wasn't, you know, as capable as some of the other aircraft out there. It, it, the radar was probably a particular weakness of the system just just in the age of the technology so it wasn't a synthetic aperture radar mapping the ground for you you had to work hard to get results out of the radar but it you know it never let me down um significantly no, you still here anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so i really enjoyed flying it yeah so after my tour on 14 squadron finished this would be 93 uh i went oh sorry 90, yeah, 93 94 uh i went to a ground tour at that point I couldn't escape the gravitational pull of it anymore. <laughs> um, I did two years in the wing operations centre at Lossy Mouth, uh, following which I got back onto the Tornado. So it's a, you do a short refresher course and then go back to a, to a squadron which for me was staying at Lossy on 12 squadron in the maritime role. It's another new role to, to learn. Um, that got you into more, into different exercises so we would do um, what is now I think called Neptune Warrior but used to be called the Joint Maritime Course exercises um, in, in the anti-surface warfare role. Um, we got to do one excellent deployment actually in the maritime role which was out to Malaysia for an exercise called Flying Fish, flying yeah. from Butterworth in Malaysia uh, which was brilliant. Actually I flew on the, the trail back from one of those uh, exercises I flew my longest trip in the tornado which was six hours 15 <laughs> uh, one of the tanker um, trail sorties and then towards the end of my I saw I did two years on 12 squadron and then got selected for the qualified weapons instructor course which was literally just across the the pan so out of the 12 squadron house site and you're at 15 squadron which is where the QI course was run um, so that was the the first half of 1998 was taken up by by doing the QI course, uh, a an, an intense course. Uh, you you spend really long days on that course because if you if you go back to what I said at, at Larbrook and and that sort of typical day that doesn't exist, the QI course always flew first wave because there was so much debriefing to do mm. associated with it, and you would so you would always have an early start plan fly come back and then you debrief each of the four cruise tapes in turn so the debrief went on all afternoon with the qi course Oof. it was painful uh, but it, but the whole point was that you you were going to come out at the end of this course as and, and go to your squadron as the weapons expert weapons and tactics is your thing so you had to know absolutely everything it, it wasn't acceptable to not know what that little bit of symbology meant at this stage of an attack or or the like and that the course culminates with the combined qi op phase where all the qi courses that are running at the time which for us was i think harrier sea harrier Jaguar, which was running alongside us at Lossy, uh, GR1 and probably the F3 course, all get together with some of the other squadrons and run a big exercise. It's the culmination of the, of the flying training. So that was, uh, at the end of that course, you, you graduate as a, as a qualified weapons instructor 
for me, I was selected to stay on 15 squadron and teach. So I, I did a, a tour on the conversion unit then. Um, a lot of that was flying with the basic and refresher course students as they would come through their flying training. Uh, and some of it would be flying with the QI course, as a, you would guess with the QI course, as a, particularly when um, check sorties needed to be flown on the students. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was an interesting mix, but but it wasn't frontline flying, but it was it kept you on your toes. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. <laughs>